Howdy. Welcome back to the unofficial Lipscomb Alumni Podcast. Andrew Glass here, host of this here podcast. I'm so glad you came back for more. Love that. I think most of you all know how to reach me by this point. Bison's.podcast.unofficial, either Gmail or on Instagram. It's the same, both places. We are about to jump into part two of my conversation with Jocasta G. Ope, one of my all-time favorite Pi Delta babies, one of my all-time favorite SAA comrades, and one of my all-time favorite SGA members. And even though I didn't even know it at the time in college, my all-time favorite student liaison to the Beeman Library. But before we jump into her life after Lipscomb part, I love a couple of the bullet points Joe covers off on, including Lipscomb Homecoming Court. We have unique awards like Miss Lipscomb and the Bachelor of Ugliness. Only at LU would such a thing exist. And the people that represent the student body on these homecoming courts are always those with the most school spirit. Lipscomb parties were, well, they were mainly kind of under the radar, I guess. You had to kind of party in secret. But were we really partiers? I mean, how often does a Lipscomb student drink during the week? Would you classify your own partying as weekend only? But you had to hit up on the rocks, right? I think that bar on Demumbrian was like three different names during college. Closing Bell, On the Rocks, and then the fabulous, fabulous dance club, South. But at On the Rocks, you had to go check out Penny Beer Night and see Dustin Lynch perform. $5 for all the beer you can drink and front row seats to watch a guy who would end up becoming one of country music's biggest names. Man, I miss the old Nashville. And Joe and I have fun calling back to some of these hilarious college memories. Joe has always gravitated towards being in leadership and being involved. Some people are just naturally built for leadership. Natural-born leaders, so they say. I think in Joe's case, it's a mixture of innate ability and a really strong upbringing. She excels in so many areas of her professional and civic involvement. After graduating from Lipscomb, Joe went down to Memphis to attend pharmacy school at UT Memphis. She started her pharmacy career with several different types of experiences, with big retail brands like Kroger and Rite Aid. She's worked for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. She's also worked for large healthcare providers like HCA, Magellan Health, and Optum Health. And through all these experiences, Joe has gained great perspective on how we provide healthcare to a variety of demographics, whether it's the healthcare that we provide to our veterans through the UVA or how we provide healthcare education to populations that are underserved or in poverty, or those that don't understand their own medications, for example. Whether it's elective care and top-tier coverage, or those that can barely afford healthcare or have no access to it, we have a lot to learn from Joe's experiences. The Tuskegee experiment. What was it, and why is it still so relevant to the problems we're facing in delivering proper healthcare to minority groups today? The distrust that exists between the black community and the healthcare industry has deep roots. While this problem spans centuries, in the modern history age, we see severe undertreatment of the black community within our country. This is not my area of expertise, as I pretty much have to Google any and all healthcare terms. I am not a healthcare professional. I'm not even a professional podcaster. So let Joe share with you here about how the data reflects under treatment and disproportional increases for the black community in areas like prenatal care, infant mortality rates, and postpartum care, just to name a few. Joe is the expert, and I think we all have a lot to learn here. 
Homeless communities, the underserved, or populations of generational poverty are also the unfortunate victims of a lopsided dispersion of accurate information about healthcare. Take COVID, for example. We don't all have the same access to health information and precautions that can and should be taken. Information and access to testing or vaccines. That type of information has to be deployed to all of us. Yet some populations miss that information. It just simply doesn't get to them. And Joe is on the front lines of those types of initiatives. As she's already mentioned, she's living in Anchorage, Alaska these days. Joe is making waves and initiating positive change in policy on many levels, the local level, the state level, and also on the national level, possibly even global. It's awesome to see someone you went to school with doing big things and having that kind of effect on a grand stage. Joe is currently a manager of clinical innovation with CareSource, writing healthcare policy, but that's not all. She's the COVID Clinic Health Equity Director for the state of Alaska. She is the Diversity Coordinator for the Alaska Chamber of Commerce. She is a board member on the Alaska Black Caucus, and she's on the board for the Alaska Public Library. We have lots to talk about, as you can see, so let's just go ahead and jump in. First, some bumper music, and I gotta have something cool to intro Joe with here. I'm going with one of my favorite artists over the years, Sam Sparrow. Last name is S-P-A-R-R-O. No W there. And he's got a track here called Love Like That. That came out just last year, 2020. This is a slightly different version I'm going to play as it's a remix. So if you do end up looking it up, it's the Initial Talk remix. And there's a heavy new Jack Swing emphasis and early 90s pop R&B. Everything Sam does is gold in my book. And on the back end, uh, a throwback single from High Fashion, definitely a post-disco pop R&B dance tune. The song is called Feeling Lucky Lately, and it was released in 1982, and it's a lot of fun, so check that out. All right, time for the official disclaimer. I am no way a part of Lipscomb University, so here it goes. I am not an elected representative of Lipscomb University. I am not an employee of Lipscomb University. I am in no way sponsored or endorsed by Lipscomb University. This podcast has no affiliation with the school, the administration, the faculty, staff, students, etc. My only affiliation is that I'm an alum of the school. I do not receive any funding or compensation from Lipscomb University, its donors, or any other entity. This podcast represents the opinions and views of Andrew Glass and my guests on the show. The content here is for entertainment purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this show are my own and my guests and do not reflect that of Lipscomb University in any way. All right, with that out of the way, let's jump into some Sam Sparrow and part two of my conversation with Joe Costa. Gee, oh. Be there when it's easy or tough I wanna love like that 
So you go down to Memphis to go to UT um, for the pharmacy school, and you're getting your doctorate there. Um, I kind of want to talk a little bit about Memphis. Um, it, you know, you mentioned this is like your your real college experience. You're down in Memphis. How did Memphis remind you of Nashville in some ways, or even Knoxville? But I mean, certainly the Memphis that's there now is like there's there's a lot of cool things happening in Memphis, like, uh, at this moment, you know, and, and just areas that are, um, really taken off or whatever. Um, but when you were there, what was Memphis like and did you enjoy the city or did it remind you of Nashville, Knoxville, that kind of thing? Yeah. Oh, wait, before we leave Lipscomb, I do oh, have yeah. one other thing mm-hmm. because it kind of ties back. Is that how at one point I, I was on homecoming court Oh yeah. and but that part, that is the part I think that is the funniest thing <laughs> to me from thinking about like, if you can do one thing at Lipscomb, like the, I couldn't have imagined being on homecoming court at any other college ever, <laughs> like, you know, and, but it Why? just like, like, I, I don't know, I guess it's more of the pageantry, but then like homecoming court just seems so unusual from a from a college standpoint of things that you get like elected to but it seemed like if you look at who was on homecoming court at like throughout our years um like where you and who was like mr uh or miss lipskin and then the bachelor of ugliness Mm -hmm. like it's just so funny to me to like think about those people because like it logically makes sense but at any other school I don't even know if it would have been those people because it wasn't like they were like the like what was deemed popular were just so different oh yeah 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 Yeah, totally I don't remember who was the bachelor of ugliness our senior year but I'm pretty sure Miriam was the queen so Miriam she was the homecoming queen yeah um Austin Davidson that's right yeah yeah was the bachelor of ugliness um, and then, uh, Caroline who, Bumpus was on the court with you. Yeah. Yep. Caroline Bumpus. We had, um, uh, Megan Dickerson. She was Miss Lipscomb. Yeah. And okay. so like, it was, yeah. So just, which I mean, makes sense. She's like a quintessential Lipscomb, like yeah. through and through, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, but it's just like, like that, those kinds of things, it just like makes me laugh of like. Yeah, I was just like randomly on homecoming court. Yeah, <laughs> like, I was like, what? <laughs> Charday was on there, like I think uh, a few years before me too. Which Charday makes sense. I mean, like she's gorgeous. Like that's kind of the thing too. I'm like, that's who I would think would be on a homecoming court. Yeah. So yeah. Um, awesome. Anyways, okay, back to Memphis. Yeah. Um. So Memphis was completely different, 100 percent different. Um, from twofold. So Memphis was. So pharmacy school, like I said, true college experience, a lot of partying, going um, downtown. And like, and, you know, we, uh, you know, from a partying standpoint, definitely partied while at Lipscomb, just had to do it, you know, underground (laughs) and, and, you know, watching your back and all that. But this was just free for all where you didn't have to worry about that. And I was with partying professionals who went, had college experiences where this was just a natural progression and one up there. So that part was nice. The blues, uh, seeing the food, all oh, the food was incredible for all the barbecue. There's Bill Street and 
all of the insanity that is Bill Street and then smack dab and, you know, trying to become a medical professional <laughs> all yeah. rolled up into one. Um, yeah. So there, it was an, an adjustment there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't feel, you mentioned partying at Lipscomb and I'm not sure me and you partied together that much, but like, uh, and maybe this is just me, but what I considered us partying was, um, and you know, you knew who I lived with, like Travis and Clay mm-hmm. McLean and those guys. Like, um, yeah. we didn't drink Sunday through Thursday. It seemed like it was mm-hmm. like, uh, homework. Um, w- everybody's involved in all these things or you got social club meetings, yeah. you got SGA meetings, you got this, you got that. And which like, we didn't drink at any of those. Right. Really. Like that wasn't like, yeah. Cause it was on campus. It just seemed it like kind of like Friday, world. Saturday, you know, yeah. which I guess you could say that's partying, but like. You know, I think the partying you're talking about from your friends at Memphis that went to other schools, like they probably it was like, a, you know, six to seven night a week thing, maybe. And not even on the week, like yeah. not even like at night, like it was like, yeah, they would be doing like things during the day. And I think back, like, remember with quests, there was when the quest team was having like a, I guess it was our, like our gathering and like us becoming friends and we did like slip and slide yeah. with sun drop yeah <laughs> like like i just think that that's so funny that we were drinking sun drops like any pl- other place it would have been like you know cracking open beers it's it comical been, like a keg like that kind of thing but we were like i mean it was like good clean fun <laughs> yeah that's exactly yeah. the way i put it so, yeah yeah and but yeah so that was definitely a difference but yeah it was yeah just i especially even going like we had Demumbrian, you know, and we were in Nashville, but like you, if you went out, I remember like going out to like On the Rocks, mm-hmm. like was big because they had like the penny beers yeah. or whatever. Dustin Lynch and is playing. Yeah, which don't, don't even get me started on that. Like when I tell people, it's like, yeah, like we would go to like On the Rocks, Dustin Lynch would be playing. Yeah. No one was paying attention. Like it was just <laughs> like, oh, Dustin's playing again. Yeah. And they're like, wait, like Dustin Lynch? I'm like, yeah, yeah. I know, right? <laughs> like, it's incredible it's like yeah it's like yeah that's like that's how it was like yeah you just didn't know who was about to be famous uh no joke yeah uh yeah i mean it's i think you know we kind of keep going back to this there's like this kind of sweet innocence to like i mean even just the partying that we did and everything Mm -hmm. I, i just i don't ever remember like hearing the story about like somebody um, you know, like a tragic story from like the partying that we did, where there was like going to Demumbria. I'm sure I'm a, unaware yeah. of a lot of things, but like, you know, there just wasn't, there just wasn't like a whole lot of like, um, concern, I guess. It's kind of like, we kind of, I don't know, looked out for each other. I don't know if that's the way to think, say it, but I, I don't yeah. remember ever feeling like, oh man, these people over here are just taking it way too hard, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, I, there's definitely, I can remember some, some nights got, got a little crazy, especially Halloween's Halloween's always got about pretty crazy. Um, but yeah, I don't think there was ever a time where I didn't feel safe, but I, I mean, I had, I had my ladies and we had our rules. Like, you know, we always had a DDE, like there was just some kind of things that we set in kind Mm -hmm. of early on, but a lot of the rules were honestly around like 
don't take a picture with a cup in your hand. You can't get kicked <laughs> yeah. out. Like it was more of right. those things. Those were like the, the rules we were going with. Um, so that's why. Don't go back going to campus. To Memphis, yeah. Yeah. That was probably one of the hardest things. It's like, where are we going to stay for the night? Right. Which if I like dug deep there, that was probably some of the more unsafe things was the the places we would have, like the risks we would take of where we would crash mm-hmm. because you couldn't go home, which um, it's kind of like the double-edged sword, like from a parent, you know, it's like, you want your kid, like, I don't care how drunk you are. I want you in your bed, like, you know, come home, like no questions asked kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And that's like, we're like teenagers get in trouble with that. Um, that's how I felt it was, let's go. But having that removed in Memphis, it just, it made it, you felt like a full-fledged adult mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit more without having, but even things like, cigarette smoke uh i like going to memphis and just like some of the parties and that kind of setting was so different because i lived on campus at lipscomb all four years and so smelling cigarette smoke was just such a weird thing for me because it was just like not happening and not around which that seems like so innocent to say but it was just you you just didn't run into it ever (laughs) like so it was just strange yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, um, you know, I guess with the time we still have, um, transitioning, let's, let's get into your work life and, in graduating yeah. and, uh, um, I'm going to let you choose here, um, in terms of the jobs that you may want to talk about, because, um, mm-hmm. I mean this in like the best way possible, like, researching your LinkedIn was, um, quite a a nice little fun thing for me. And you've just had a lot of different work experiences, um, Mm -hmm. from starting out in pharmacy, uh, like Kroger, which is, you know, big, you know, big pharmacy, like kind of thing to, to where you are now. And so, um, you know, whether it's Kroger or I'd say to me, I'm definitely interested to hear about HCA. Um, but you know, Kroger, um, I'm just scanning here. Um, did you work at Rite Aid? Yeah, Rite Aid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, U.S. Department of uh, VA Affairs. Um, mm-hmm. You know, all that stuff. I mean, there's there's so much that you did there, and I, I guess would love to just hear about from your experience. Like, what did you what did you glean from that? That's really kind of helped you carry into your career because some of it's very. I mean, filling prescriptions is a lot different from writing policy, which is what you're doing now, you know? So, um, yeah. So from career pathway, uh, I started out as a a pharmacy tech when I was still at Lipscomb working at Kroger, uh, the Kroger and Green Hills. And uh, that was getting that experience, just kind of, you know, get my feet wet into pharmacy. I ended up um, going to pharmacy school at the you know, at University of Tennessee in Memphis. While there, I had several different jobs. So when you get into pharmacy school, your role becomes a pharmacy intern, which is still like, a, it's a glorified technician, but you can do a little bit more. Um, and so as a pharmacy intern, I worked at, um, I did research uh, with a women's health uh, 
research study that was happening. And then I was a intern at the VA uh, in Memphis and got to be in that more hospital setting and doing the meds there and going and seeing, you know, uh, patients at the bedside and, and seeing how that operated in those two different sides of pharmacy uh, and, and all the intricacies that is the VA system and the VA hospital setting. Um, I then went uh, to, and worked at a independent pharmacy. Um, it was connected to the Piggly Wiggly in Memphis, and it was in a, a rough area uh, of, of Memphis. So got to see completely different types of demographics, but also learning how uh, meeting people where they were and creating that diversity, equity, and inclusion standpoint when it came to the health equity piece uh, of things. Mm -hmm. Um, I uh, moved to Nashville and I did my clinical rotations in Nashville. And so I started working at a Rite Aid and I worked at the Rite Aid that's right across the street from Vanderbilt, the one that used to be like the Eckerd back in the day. And now it's like that weird position Rite Aid next to the Smoothie King. Uh, Um, It kind of comes to the point. Uh, Yeah, exactly. You can drive through it to Mm -hmm. Elliston Place. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, so I was there. So again, different, you know, you had a lot of the Vanderbilt flow in of like the students there. And so different type of economic level um, and going on in that space. So seeing it from different sides and from the corp- that corporation standpoint that is, um, you know, the pharmacy space, mm-hmm. I got, I did after graduating from pharmacy school, I did a residency that was in managed care. So looking at the business side of, of healthcare. And I did that at HCA uh, at okay. the corporate office in the, um, the clinical service group. Uh, so the pharmacy corporate area and loved every single minute of it. I, uh, this loved the company loved, I mean, it was a collection of like badass ladies that were running the show there um, and got uh, learned so much and had amazing mentors uh, that kind of, that just carried me through and really elevated my career and you know how I looked at my career pathway but also just like pharmacy and expanding my scope there so in that non-traditional way um, yeah, I ended up. Can we pause right there? I just yeah. um, about those few different experiences, um, and and talking about the VA hospital and that patient interaction, because um, mm-hmm. I, I I would assume that's a tough job. I mean, anybody working in patient healthcare, uh, mm-hmm. it's got to be exhausting. Um, you know, when you get home from a day, I'm sure you're like you've seen so much you've your heart has been tugged at you've smiled you've you know felt empathy and sympathy you know all kinds of different things like what do you remember most from from that um was it um you know visiting with people who um you know were in bad shape and the the healthcare system hadn't been good to them, but fortunately they were veterans. Um, was it um, something that they were teaching you about, you know, valuing life like in their state? Like what, what kind of stands out when you look back on that? Yeah. So I've done the direct patient care out. So at the VA, yes, uh, like in that hospital setting and then at uh, Southern Hills Medical Center too during residency. Um, but at the VA, one of the things that 
stuck stuck with me. They have a spinal cord unit there. So um, having individuals who are, um, you know, paraplegics, quadriplegics, things of that nature. And so that was probably some of the most compelling stories um, and spaces of the, you know, wounded soldiers or just accidents that happened later on, you know, while they were in their vet status and, and, and seeing that and seeing them overcome so many obstacles and barriers in that space, um, that part really uh, stuck with me. And then there was also a, a psych unit of, so uh, individuals, especially who are having um, dementia or, you know, other types of memory losses and just having to be um, like, you know, sensitive and having just a compassionate heart and that, you know, and remembering when you're around some of those individuals that, you know, it, you know, not to take it personally that, you know, they are just doing the best that they can and making sure that you still humanize them, you know, even if it's a difficult time or a difficult like circumstance or situation. What's a pretty loaded question here, but like, what's the net net you see on how we take care of our, our vets? I mean, do we do a good job in that in comparison to the rest of the population? Um, like if you're a veteran and you can go to the, you know, VA hospital, are you already at a pretty good advantage there as compared to you know, those who can't afford good health care or, you know, yeah. what, just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, so my thoughts on that is actually not from a professional capacity, uh, I would say. I think it, that comes a little bit more personal. So the, especially thinking through like my, my dad being a vet, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and then my mom <clears throat> getting to be uh, as a spouse, like on his insurance, I, I am we're very lucky, I think, to have that and to have, you know, there are still a tremendous amount, you know, some hoops that you have to jump in, which which is just the U.S. healthcare system overall. But knowing that they have that access point of they can make that connection and it can, it's not an out-of-pocket cost for them, Mm -hmm. especially uh, like if they're, in an area, if they're living in an area where they can go into a VA hospital or a, a base hospital, uh, especially like just having that point, um, that part works out very well for them in their situations. And I know a lot of people kind of can fall through the cracks, uh, but um, yeah, for that, I've seen it at that personal level of how well it can help and, and it can happen quickly, even though there's some people like who need it much, much more quicker, but from, from what they've been able to experience. But I mean, I'm, I could be narrow side of there because I'm involved in a lot of their care and they have someone who has, you know, high health literacy, who can tell them when they need to push and fight and when, you know, and, and can empower them with the words that they need to say, and then can, you know, take their own ownership of their own health care. Um, but that part has been a good pairing there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you, if you don't have that, regardless of the institution, you can fall through the cracks. It can be a Swiss cheese model very quickly. Um, yeah, but that, cost not being a burden, it helps tremendously. Mm. 
And then did you see that flip side? Because you mentioned the um, the pharmacy that you worked at in the, the independent pharmacy at the Piggly Wiggly in the bad area in Memphis. Like on that side, are you seeing um, the drastic gaps in the healthcare system? Like what what kinds of situations did you run into there with, I mean, could it have been as simple as like people not being able to afford the, the drugs that they're trying to get or they don't have a prescription and they're just trying to con you? I mean, what what's the situations that... Yeah. So no, not, not nearly the con there. So in, in that case, you had a lot uh, more of like individuals that were on um, like Medicaid, for instance. So I just, for the socioeconomic kind of standpoint, it was uh, just more uh, Medicaid population. And so what you saw there was like people not speaking to them, like they were humans, you know, and not fully explaining the ins and outs of like why they were taking their medication. Think, even things about like preventative care were just gaps uh, there where, you know, it, you didn't have to throw pills at everything or you did, you know, it wasn't, uh, you shouldn't expect people to get worse or like there'd be d- disease progression. So that, that's when I say like meeting people where they are and just like having detailed conversations with them in a, in a way, in a manner where they could understand what was going on and feel like empowered to mm-hmm. take a role in their healthcare. That was the difference there. And so that's like my through line of all of the things that I have, I do uh, and continue to do on my healthcare journey is like remembering that uh, even now, cause I I'm at the point where I touch people at like the hundred thousand view. Um, and I'm making these widespread changes, but trying to get back of like, how does this in- affect the individual and how am I being able to like better that individual for like a, the long run uh, by doing these like little things that they don't, they don't know I'm doing it, but like I'm planting these things and these seeds for them to help remove barriers uh, in, in their healthcare journey. And um, maybe some of that you also saw in patient care at Rolling Hills as well, maybe in, from a Medicaid perspective. Um, Just like gaps in, you know, why people are there, preventative healthcare not being talked oh, to. Oh, at Southern Hills? It, it, yeah, sorry, not Rolling Hills, yeah, Southern yeah, Hills. Yeah, yeah, at Southern Hills, yeah. So Southern Hills, uh, that part, it was different, so it was that's still an HCA hospital. Um, and so it was more of, um, a lot more elective care, okay. elective surgeries, things of that nature. So yeah, so it was just a different framework of it. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. gotcha. Gotcha. So, um, you know, I think there's probably opportunities for people to go here. Maybe you talk about some some things in healthcare policy. I know when we were kind of prepping for this, I was like, I'd like to touch on some of these things. And you're like, I've spoken about these things. Um, so I don't know if those are out there and I know we can't spend a bunch of time on a dissertation, but maybe from your last comments, this is a good place to, to kind of interject this because I did want to talk about the distrust of maybe, uh, communities very similar 
to where you were working um, in that mm-hmm. pharmacy at uh, the Piggly Wiggly there, like mm-hmm. the distrust that has been created between those kind of lower income areas, the people that live there, um, you know, specifically and most uh, often it seems African-American, but the the distrust between them and, you know, big healthcare, big pharma, um, and and I, I mentioned like, you know, if you want to talk a little bit about or can, because I certainly have no knowledge um, around Tuskegee and that kind of mm-hmm. thing, um, but just how, how this how understanding of all that you have developed over the years and like how that's kind of propelling you into the decisions and policies that you're making. Yeah. So let's, uh, let me speed up my timeline here. Um, yeah, we can, so, we can, we're going to go, this yeah. is, now we're in kind of a, uh, flashbacks <laughs> and we're going yeah. flashbacks and, and future state. Future state. Yeah. So speed up to the now. So I live in, uh, Anchorage, Alaska, and I um, have a few different roles here. So one, I am the uh, manager of clinical innovations for CareSource, which is a uh, a regional healthcare company that's actually based in Ohio, but I, I work for them remotely, but like dreaming big and thinking expansive about how we can take care of our own in the health plan world, we call patients members, but how we can take care of our members. And so having that kind of peace and thinking outside of the box. Um, I'm also the diversity coordinator for the Anchorage Chamber of Commerce um, here um, in the state. Uh, so looking at uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion from a business practice. Um, and then I um, also am on uh, the board of the Alaska Black Caucus. And when uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, the COVID pandemic and starting to see some of the disproportional effects of that pandemic on the Black population, started doing some talks in regards to that um, piece of uh, you know, why this was happening, what we were seeing for how, especially how uh, Black people were being treated differently, uh, how their care was different, how their um, statuses of what, how they, if they were presenting, how they were being treated and, you know, why they were disproportionately dying, start talking through that. Um, it culminated to today with the vaccines and the vaccine hesitancy of maybe why we were seeing hesitancy among uh, the African-American community and people of color and in connecting that. Um, and then it kind of ended with, so I um, now I'm the COVID, COVID clinical health equity coordinator for the state of Alaska too. Um, and if I say that, I also, also say that I am not speaking like on their behalf because mm-hmm. they're state and that this is all personal. Uh, so putting right. that in there. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. But going to all of this uh, scenario and, uh, of, you know, African-Americans and our history with the healthcare system, mm-hmm. um, we, for a long time, we were the guinea pigs. We were being used as test cases, as um, means to advance experimental research. And uh, there was zero consent done in this space. Uh, We were either lied to 
we were forced into these things. We did not know that there was another choice or another option. Um, and you mentioned the Tuskegee experiment. That is one of them um, that you, know, you hear about uh, a lot that's used uh, in this case where um, in that group, it was a group of men who had syphilis. Mm-hmm. And this they is were like being, in the 30s, right? Um, it actually it, it started in the 30s, but it ended in uh, the 70s. So it went okay. from 1930s to 1970. So it was 40 years. Okay. So which I think that that's important because some people think that you know it was just just maybe just the 30s, mm-hmm. but it was actually 40 years that they had these men enrolled in the study. Um, and at first, it was actually pretty um, equalized because there was not a, a cure for syphilis. But quickly, it was discovered that penicillin cured syphilis, but they did not give that treatment to the black uh, men that were in the study. And because they wanted to see, they wanted to study the disease progression. And so the treatment was not given to them um, for that entire time. And so, uh, and for those who don't know, like syphilis, uh, one of the devastating effects of syphilis is that you it you can get neurosyphilis and it can it attacks your brain um, and thinking of it in that respect. So it can be uh, highly debilitating over the course of time if it goes untreated. And they just let this happen. And so uh, there's that. And then but that seems like, you know, cases that are a long time ago, but there's been several instances of just under treatment within the Black community. Um, you see it with prenatal care. You see it with the, and, and there's an increased rate of infant mortality within the Black community. You see it with postpartum care and the uh, increase of black moms in that postpartum state dying. Uh, in in that part, it does not matter what your socioeconomic class is. Like you're disproportionately dying. And one of those that we saw was uh, with Serena Williams' documentary, her HBO documentary, mm-hmm. and seeing her fight literally fight for the care she needed when she was giving birth because she was experiencing a blood clot in her lungs, um, which we call a pulmonary embolism. And and she was able to verbalize the medication she needed because this was not the first time that this happened. Um, And you would think that like people are going to listen to Serena Williams, (laughs) who is pretty in tune with her body. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it it is her, her vehicle, the, her powerhouse and didn't get listened to. And even at the time, I think she made something like $200 million that year, Mm -hmm. like, and none of that mattered because she still wasn't listened to. So there's just this distrust that we're not heard. We're tested upon we're giving that lesser than treatment care, all of that, that's culminated until some hesitancy um, today about the vaccines uh, and getting just care for COVID. Um, but that's not, that's not it. There's the hesitancy part, but then there's also just barriers of not getting communicated to, not being told options, choices, not knowing how to schedule appointments uh, because a lot of this, you, you'll see it like the information about the about even the COVID vaccines. It's passed around on on social media, and the algorithms are not don't allow for inclusivity at all. You know, it's going to be your really 
tight network and it's typically people who are looking like you. So if you've got healthcare people who are like dropping this on their posts, uh, like the health departments and who are like sharing this information, but it's like predominantly like older white people who are sharing it with more older white people. Like you're just Mm -hmm. like, you're missing out on a lot of the uh, other groups within your communities aren't even seeing this or by the time they see it, all of the appointments are done because it's just taken days for the algorithms to pop it up in their spheres. So there's like a lot of things like that, that have all culminated into how are we really intentionally looking at health equity overall and creating policies and, and practices that give everyone that fair shot to that end goal. Yeah. Like the dis dispersion of accurate information um sounds like a a big problem right you mentioned like old white people sharing uh let's just say it is accurate things Mm -hmm. right on social media um their sphere of people their friends their social friends are probably going to be predominantly older white people like you said um Mm -hmm. and then you know, we just take anybody else and their social media presence and like think about all the inaccurate information that's going around. And yeah. it's like, how do you, I know it's pretty loaded here, but like, how do you cut through all that to get the information? Um, you know, whether it be like new policy, whether it be like, here's the facts and here's, you know, not the facts, uh, distributing that out because it's, I know it sounds pretty silly, but like not everybody is on social media and not everybody has access to CNN or, you know, wherever like the government's talking about what's going on. So I can imagine when COVID first happened, like the lower income, the underserved, like they probably weren't even really aware of what was happening and how it would affect them. Is that? Yeah. So yeah, getting that information out. So some key things that, you know, we've had to do. One, it's all the different mediums and really utilizing that. So doing social media, yes, but also doing radio, doing TV ads, doing TV um briefings that were happening in that space and then paper was important so putting up notices flyers um and then word of mouth uh, especially of you know trusted professionals who could or trusted leaders within groups that could get the message out so whether that be a faith-based leaders whether that be um individuals who are navigators for uh, some of these communities. So you, uh, if it's um, people who are experiencing homelessness and, you know, that are working at those shelters and getting that information around about, you know, social distancing, wearing masks, hand washing, um, you know, what this virus is, how it's passed, how it was contagious. Um, so getting that out and then using those same types of systems and networks when it came with the vaccines as well. But we're learning. We're, there, there's so many lessons learned that we're seeing like right now in real time that we're able to try to combat and fix because um, we're we are getting a lot of federal money that's designed to tackle these, you know, things like access um, 
access to to care, access to testing, access to the vaccines. Um, and we're able to see like all of these things, like, is it a technology issue? Do we need to expand broadband? Do we need to ensure clean water for, you know, washing hands? Like all of those kinds of things that you have to like put it all together and and make some big moves and big changes. So you mentioned like uh, the TV spots, um, mm-hmm. finding religious leaders of, you know, you mentioned that um, Anchorage and Alaska in general is just a very diverse, um, much more diverse than, you know, here in Nashville or something. Um, you're uh, so so getting the getting to those leaders, g- gaining their trust and that, hey, this this is what we need your help with. And this is like why it's going to be good. Um, mm-hmm. But you're overseeing like a big piece of those things. It's, it's like I'm even learning more from you telling me this because like when I thought you're writing policy, you know, I'm thinking about you like sitting down with books and you're like, <laughs> it sounds like you're um, really developing campaigns and like getting yeah. out in front of people and that the um, responsibility of that is budgets and it's um, mm-hmm. execution and strategy and all that. So uh, how much of that are you overseeing? And is that like with you and a small team or what's that look like? Yeah. So different parts in different areas. So um, in some spaces, it is doing the the advocacy and the education to like, you know, me being the trusted person <laughs> that can, it can explain some of these to, to communities. Um, I do a lot of uh, talks to community councils, to community organizations, basically kind of like train the trainer. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they can feel empowered and educated about a lot of these topics and they can go out and speak to the um, the people who utilize their services or organizations and can feel confident about that or can be key people within the community that's a trusted voice uh, for their smaller you know subdivisions or you know family and friends and their network of people so doing that part of it and then, working through that bigger policy initiative. So getting like, where can these dollars go? How can we fund grants, programs uh, for the people who do this day in, day out? And, and, you know, how do I get the money to them? How do I, how are we looking at health equity larger? What are the current policies in place that are determining, you know, who gets what services when and untangling that and, and looking at it from a both an, an, an equity lens, but also an ethics lens uh, as well. So doing all of that. So it's like really like all of the above and different fractions. So from um, my work uh, from the clinical innovation standpoint, that's really making like clinical programs uh, for, for the masses kind of, you know, trying to match, you know, while we have COVID, people still have all of the other disease states <laughs> that they need mm-hmm. to manage. So, you know, making that as simple for people, looking at things like from the business lens for the, with the chamber, um, looking at practices of, um, how businesses can be better equipped for their diverse workforce, you know, and and making sure that they're looking at, even at things like 
PTO time for getting uh, getting vaccinated and, or time off mm-hmm. for maybe the side effects afterwards and, you know, taking stance against social injustice everywhere and doing all of that piece, uh, whether or not they're in the healthcare system, but they still have people that are, you know, showing up as their host selves to work. <laughs> and that's included in that. And then from uh, the more government side, that's where I can get in, into really making like actual policies and uh, doing those things that can make that long lasting difference and, and changing the needle of how um the government reacts to this and the speed at which we can react to this and how we can have partnerships with foundations and other organizations to help us make widespread change. Yeah. On the diversity, um, chamber of commerce piece. Um, I I think like for some reason, when I think of Alaska, I just, I think of all the snow you're talking about. And I just think of like a peaceful, like, uh, you know, nothing's ever wrong. Like, I don't know why I have this view of Alaska. I think it's because it's like way up there and it just, you know, doesn't doesn't come into my purview. And so I think it's kind of like a paradisical in some way. But is that a word? I don't know. Paradise. Um, when, you know, COVID happens and then we have uh, the events of the summer, right, that um, just cause so much racial tension, uh, what what was that like in Anchorage, would you say, versus like here in, you know, some of the mainland cities? Um, was it a difficult uh, time for you to be in that position and try to help explain what was going on? Um, did people seem to uh, react very strongly, even though it's so far removed from the main piece of the United States? Like I guess I'm just kind of wondering how you navigated that um, whole time. And I mean, it's not like we're healed from that time. Um, We're still working through it, but just kind of what the environment and the pulse was like there during the summer months kind of following COVID. Well, so we've had the disparities seen in COVID. We had George Floyd's murder and now we're having all of the increased Asian hate, mm-hmm. you know, murders and attacks. Um, and so that all of those really do resonate here in Alaska. So Alaska is um, pretty diverse uh, in you, you know, first and foremost, there are the Alaska natives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, and we've got severed, you know, with the Alaska Natives in the villages here. Uh, and, you know, this is this land that we're on, the indigenous land and being rooted in that and that mindset and that conversation is um, always top of mind here in Alaska. Um, and when thinking about pandemics, um, that hits that population pretty hard because they have been devastated by past pandemics. Um, there was the there was a big TB outbreak that happened within the villages that you know took out where some people are their only surviving members of that. Mm. The Spanish flu hit the villages and the Alaska Native communities really hard as well. Again, where 
they were like, you know, one or two people of their, you know, entire households that were left. Um, so that part, uh, they remember that. So when it came to like vaccinations, the, a lot of those communities were, they have their own. So they're part of the Indian health um, system and the, their network of hospitals uh, were, they, I mean, triple time over to get get their communities vaccinated and they I mean they had an outstanding vaccination rate but it's just those memories really run deep uh of how how the viruses can really like affect them so there was that uh and then we have a, a decent sized African-American community here especially here in Anchorage and in Fairbanks uh, but then there's so many other communities. We have a really large Korean population. Uh, the Asian and Pacific Islander population is, is large. Like I said, we have the Samoan Church here. Mm-hmm. We have um, a ref- we have uh, a large refugee population uh, here too. Uh, we have a good amount of of, of Latinx groups uh, as well. So we, we're a melting pot. Like there's where I live in Anchorage, the high school that. Um, is within my zone, speaks a hundred different languages within that high school. So there's a lot of like these pockets of diversity here uh, that we, we know and we celebrate. And so uh, seeing that like hurt and pain for some of these demographics um, resonates with us. And we, we do see that. And like the, the the idea, the concept of allyship is strong here. Mm -hmm. Um, But we have problems like no else. We do have, we, you know, we have the, the conservative, I would say more fractions here. We have um, some, some pockets here that, you know, diversity is kind of a dirty word. Equity, like what does equity really mean? You know, is it just like, you know, being quote unquote racist against like white people? So there's still like all of those problems that are and issues that are coming up in the lower 48. We get that here um, as well. It's just, yeah, we just have, I think, a few different lenses, just a way of talking about it that's different. So um, for, even from a hesitancy standpoint, you know, uh, you might be hearing this, but one of the groups that's really rising from the hesitancy are white, uh, older white men who vote Republican, um, which is like very like specific. And we've got a lot of that here in Alaska that we're, you know, have to chip away at and again, mm-hmm. meeting people where they are mm-hmm. and understanding what, you know, what are those hesitant, why are they hesitant? What is their needs? You know, making sure we're listening to their concerns and, and needs and chipping away at, you know, that hesitancy too. So, yeah. Man, it's, so um, it's like, I don't know when you sleep, Joe, because um, you've got I, rarely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, to kind of uh, think back um, of of everything you've talked about. I mean, you've got your your job with CareSource, mm-hmm. and then you've got um, the job with the chamber. But then at first, I was thinking that was you know limited to just the city of Anchorage, but it, you're really overseeing. Um, so much uh, in both the healthcare space, policy and diversity for the state as well. Is that, that's yeah. a good summary, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I've got technically three jobs, one like 
main job, which is care source, but mm-hmm. then three, three jobs and then two boards mm-hmm. that I'm on, uh, I'm on, cause I'm on the board of the Alaska, uh, the Alaska Black Caucus, which is a nonpartisan, uh, coalition here. And then I'm also on the board of the, uh, Anchorage Library Foundation because libraries where it all started for me. Right. <laughs> so got to give I've back to your passion. roots. Exactly. I will. I will. Yeah. I will always show up for the library. Your mom's here. like, your mom's yeah. like, I don't care how many jobs you have as long as one of them pertains to the library. To the library. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. So doing that too. So yeah, I, um, yeah, I, like I said, this has been me since I was young of giving it my all and, you know, and I get tired and run down and I thank God every day for my husband who can, kind of be my pulse check when mm-hmm. I need it and when I'm tired and when I just can't even feed the dogs because I'm like glued <laughs> to all of my computer screens. And so having that and making sure I look up and have some fun every now and then. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I I try to do it. I mean, we're, we get these, you know, we get this finite time on earth to try to make a difference and try to make our stamp. And so I'm just, yeah, doing I'd, that. I'd say you are. Yeah. I mean, yeah. to be honest, you're definitely making a big stamp. And um, has Lipscomb ever asked you to come? Uh, well, I guess now would have been a bad time to travel during COVID. But um, mm-hmm. you know, have you been asked to share and edu- you know educate students around this stuff, or even um, the university just tapping you for, hey, we'd love to hear about what you're doing with that? No. You know? That's very no. odd. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know how plugged in I am with Lipscomb anymore. Mm-hmm. Really. Um, yeah, no, I don't think I don't think I'm that plugged in. Like I couldn't tell you like who's probably still working there, not working there, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Um are getting a new president. Um, yeah, I know. I, I do get the emails. Yeah. I, I think I say more plugged into them than just, anything. Uh, but yeah, but no, I, I wouldn't say that, but yeah, I, I wouldn't be opposed to it, but yeah, no, I just, I don't have that like connection point from like an alumni standpoint at all. Um, really with, with Lipscomb. Um, yeah, yeah. I think they're missing, they're missing out on a big, uh, opportunity with not kind of knowing all that you're doing. And, um, so maybe this, maybe this will, um, you know, maybe somebody will share this. I don't know, but, um, yeah. so but I would say that, I don't know. Are you, I might, I, I, I think, I hope you ask that question to everybody because I am curious about that. Cause I feel like there's a pocket of us that are doing some really cool things. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's pointing, if it's getting back to Lipscomb, I was like, these are your alumni doing that in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't heard of that. And like, I feel like I watch people a lot on social media and I never, I don't see a lot of our peers. Like I would say like, you know, three years up and three years after us mm-hmm. that are just like posting all of these things about like these talks at Lipscomb and doing all of that. Like, I don't see that through line nearly as much as I thought I would. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, I feel that I can talk to that just cause, mm-hmm. um, by proximity, I'm here close to the school yeah. and, you know, I've taken it upon myself in some ways to be involved. Um, I think one of the reasons for this podcast for me is to, you know, uncover that. Not so, uh, not so much so that Lipscomb knows what you're doing, but I want our alum 
folks that you just mentioned, kind of the 10 year span of, yeah. of what we touch to know what you're doing. I want you to know what they're doing. And I think like the magazine and like, you know, some of that stuff, it's, it's great. And, mm-hmm. and I know a lot of work goes into that. Um, I don't think that's the channel for which our, our generation and certainly the one that's in school now and about to be in school, I don't think that that's what they connect with. Um, so yeah, I think that's a continued battle for Lipscomb is how do we, you know, engage our alumni and keep our alumni connected. And, you know, for your, um, point about there's people doing big things, you know, there's people doing big things in the entertainment space. There's people doing big things in the healthcare space and the business space. Um, and you know, that, that, that needs to be known. And, and, um, so hopefully we'll do a better job of that and as we move forward. But um, I just had a couple other quick things um, as we kind of wrap up. I, I didn't mean to run over your um, – you kind of started getting into HCA, and I think because of who HCA is, you know, in this area, um, certainly HCA hospitals are everywhere. But, yeah. um, you know, if you want anything about that time that, that you really – um, treasure, you mentioned all your mentors and, and yeah. things like that. I and, didn't and, want to cut that off. I, yeah. And I've technically worked for HGA three times. Okay. <laughs> um, could be a they, fourth uh, eventually. Who knows? Yeah. Could be. Oh, I, I would, yeah, I would always go back to them. Uh, especially that group that I was mentioning, but you know, I HCA where like my, from my professional pathway, I, it's, that's my home base. Um, it is, it taught me really how to be comfortable speaking, you know, to see the C-suite, to physicians, you know, it gave me, op- it was another one of those places where I didn't take it for granted of the opportunities of like who I was getting in front of. So being able to just like call the CDC and, and making partnerships and projects with them um and and doing some really cool and unique things with you know at the time I was there um so I was there as a resident I was there and I worked as the a few years later as their uh the manager of antimicrobial use and resistance uh, for the pharmacy standpoint so really like fighting superbugs um in, in that respect uh, and then uh, have done some uh, contracting work to help uh, get their medication reconciliation program up and running. But you think about like the expansion, it's 180 hospitals across the U.S. Plus they've got their U.K. area. And I've worked with those ladies, again, another group of really talented ladies that are you know, working in the U.K. Um, sector for pharmacy and just and just gleaming from their insight, lots of different personalities, working relationships, seeing how important that is and making those connections. And then just seeing the company overall grow, um, going and its history in Nashville, Mm -hmm. you know, even more, uh, in really respecting that it was, it's probably one of the places that I knew the most about from a history standpoint of working there. Cause some, you know, you, you get a job at other places and it was just like, you just like, no, like I, I can't tell you like Rite Aid's origin story, <laughs> um, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. 
Um, but I, I can tell you that for when it comes to like HCA and I have, I, I personally read Jack Massey's biography and can tell you like all about that. Like I know, like, you know, their connection points with them and the frisks and like why, like how HCA became what it was and like, how it was originally like out of this like little house that was in Centennial Park. And I could, you know, in going up through that level and just having like that reverence for what they were able to build and grow with and seeing all those points and like that good. Um, so yeah, so it's just, I, I, I beam when I talk about HCA. <laughs> I can tell. It's just, yeah, it's yeah. just, it was just such a great time and experience of doing really, really um, like incredible things and like move the needle for, for healthcare overall and being, you know, e- and even going back from them when they were public, when they were private and then back public again and seeing it from the business standpoints and all of those intricacies. Mm-hmm. So, yep. And in even like one of my mentors, uh, she was even like at my wedding. So it was, it was that, that great. Like that's how much of a connection point is like, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've carried on those relationships, not even working there anymore. And it's, yeah, it's an important place to me and a special place. Yeah. And I think uh, just like as a good segue to that, um, you know, seeing what you've seen at that high level and, you know, it's so interesting how you've touched so many different areas of the healthcare system from, you know, the pharmacy, whether it's big corporate pharmacy like Kroger or Rite Aid or mm-hmm. um, independent pharmacy to patient um, engagement and and patient health care um, at the bedside to, you know, the, the HCA space and now the care source space. I know Optum's in there um, and Magellan and like all these big companies. Um, so you've kind of seen everything, like you said earlier, from a 10,000 foot level all the way down to like I'm literally at the bedside of a person or serving somebody a prescription. Um, a big question, but just kind of a you know the net net of your experience. Like, where are you really encouraged um, about in America w- where we are with healthcare? And um, you know, with that being said, what are what are the big focuses for you? I mean, we've talked about so many of them, but um, you know, you're pleased with progress that's been made, but, you know, where are you really looking to, you know, over the next several years, like really move the needle again? Yeah. So I, I see us at a tipping point. Um, there is with, you know, with this pandemic, it's opened our eyes to so many things. Um, and I see a five, 10 year plan that's focused on health equity and focused on preventative care, focused on um, empowering people to have unfeathered access to the care that they need. Um, And we started seeing that with even things as simple as like telemedicine and letting people have make be able to make those connection points if they're homebound you know where they're at and 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 keeping that from like a payment standpoint so one of the big things with a lot of this is that there are concepts and thoughts until you get someone to pay for it and 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 our biggest challenge with that is cms like getting medicaid or medicare coverage for these entities 
and making them just as important as some of the <clears throat> what are the like, the like the normal or the standards of care now and, and turning that on its on its uh hills so i i'm encouraged about that that this conversation is happening and that we're moving towards that um i am encouraged that we are hitting um this technological hub and we're in we're starting to see all of these advancements but we're 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 also putting in that you know who do we think these whether it's uh rule uh, algorithms that are firing that are helping to aid in patient care it's the actual like devices things of that nature we're having these conversations about like who were who made these things who was who were they being tested on mm-hmm. and you know and was that a, a like from a demographic standpoint does it make sense with the people we're testing it on like if we're going to make an algorithm or a device that's used to help someone who you know, is a, is a white male, which is usually like, like look at Silicon Valley and like, just, you know, from the tech world that you're getting a lot of that, mm-hmm. you know, but how does that look for a, a, a older black woman? You know, is it like, are you know, are they going to be missed because, you know, it's looking at skin or has to go through the skin and we didn't include, think about including pigmentation and mm-hmm. melanin and things of that nature, like putting like those lenses back of like all of those things, like, you know, is it in a person's language? Is it, is it in, you know, meeting their, maybe their dietary restrictions or their cultural restrictions and doing all of that because doing that in the front end, even, and we saw that with the COVID vaccine clinical trials where they were very intentional about the demographics that were being included, knowing the disparities that were hit for COVID. But like, that should always be the case. Like moving forward, you should, you know, try to shoot for that where people can see themselves representative in the healthcare that we're building out Mm. Um, and taking that as an expansive approach. So I see that being the future of things. Um, Also intertwining healthcare and then the social determinants of health because I can't even start to talk to a person about diabetes and preventative care if they're living in a food desert and they they don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. you know I have to get that done first I can't t- talk to a person about proper hand washing skills if they don't have clean water you know, or if their water's so full of lead, I can't talk to them about doctor's visits and making sure that they're adherent to their medications if they're having transportation issues, you know, and having to take five buses to get to one visit or, you know, or they don't have the child care in, to take off or to like leave their um, their child to go do these visits. Like I, you have to like put those infrastructures into, and they're, they're intertwined. Like that determines how healthy an individual can be. And we're now meshing that together and making sure we're infusing that in the conversation of making sure a member or patient is well. So I, I see this fusion and we're at this hard part of having to have the frank conversation that we hadn't been doing that as a healthcare system, you know, overall, getting to that point, understanding it, seeing it, being honest about that, and then doing better. Mm. 
Man, that is... I wish I could just like write all that down um, because I need to sponge that in. Um, but I, I hope that um, creates a lot of questions for the people that listen um, and causes a lot of reflection, even about their own healthcare situations, most likely as fortunate as it is. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, helping others realize like the work that you're doing, um, goes so deep and it's so many considerations. And, um, I don't know, just on behalf of everyone who listens to this, thank you for the work that you're doing in the space and continue to do. Um, uh, I know you're, you're married now. Um, your husband's name is, I've heard if you can. His name's Nick. Nick Nick Ulp. Okay. Mm -hmm. You and Nick, you guys are out in Anchorage. Maybe one day you'll be back here in the Tennessee area. Who knows? Um, how can people, uh, what's the best way for people to either reconnect with you or connect with you for the first time? Is it socials? Is it email? Like, what do you what do you prefer? Yeah, um, I'd say social. So if I know you, find me on, you know, like Facebook, Instagram. If it's more professional, find me on LinkedIn. Um, and then yeah, we can connect. I pretty much accept everyone on LinkedIn and you can direct message me and we can go from there. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Um, thanks for being one of my, one of my firsts, uh, here on the podcast and I can't wait to, uh, you know, edit this up and see, you know, how everything sounds and, and, um, I hope I get to see you again soon. It's been a long time. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, gosh, just, in a post-COVID world, <laughs> I can't wait for everyone to gather again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me on and doing this. I'm excited to listen to these and learn uh, what everyone is up to. Uh, we've got just the lips again, and I, my, I'm, I sound Pollyanna-ish with this, but this is the lips can bubble and the people who are just doing amazing things out there and fun things and just have been tackling this thing we call life mm-hmm. and thriving you yeah. know even even i mean they've been hit hard some i know and i know some of the people that are on your list so but they've come through it like gloriously and yeah i'm, I'm excited to listen yeah me too mm-hmm. me too well have a great night um tell nick thanks for letting me borrow you for a couple hours here and uh talk to you again soon all right thanks Self-esteem, how can you ever feel your dream?